0: Well, good evening, everyone. (laughs) I don't get to talk out of these microphones very often. It makes a big difference, doesn't it? Well, it is uh, great to be together tonight. Happy Advent. I pray that you are uh, walking slowly uh, through the season. I don't know what it is. Maybe it was because we were so... uh, uh, scattered and spread out last year, but here it is December the 8th. And to me and pastor Kurt, it feels like it's December 23rd. Um, and I don't know what, (laughs) yeah, I don't know what all that means, but nonetheless, I hope that you're moving slowly, uh, not getting caught up in the rat race. Um, I don't think the rat race can accomplish anything uh, during this time of year. And it's our hope that you're staying centered and that you are keeping your eyes and your heart open for the opportunity uh, to reach out and to bless another person in a real way uh, during this uh, season of Advent. So uh, I'm actually going to turn it over, after we pray tonight, I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Kurt. Uh, we've been going through this busy season, and so we've been kind of missing each other. And uh, I'm just going to let him uh, take it. We're, this is our last uh, Bible study of the uh, of the year. Uh, next week, we will be meeting. There will be a uh, special Christmas meal at 5.30. There will not be Vespers next week, no Vespers. Special Christmas meal beginning at 5.30 next next week in the atrium. Uh, while all that's going on, uh, Santa and Mrs. Claus will be there for you to bring your kids and your grandkids to have your photos taken with them. Um, and then at 6.30, we will all gather uh, in this room And uh, we will have a time of coming all together uh, to celebrate Christmas as a church family with some very uh, unique and individual acts from uh, various members of our congregation. You won't be expecting them. You won't want to miss it. It's really going to be a fun time together. And if you're not in the Christmas spirit by then, hopefully that will be the ticket uh, for you. So we're getting to Ezekiel 37 tonight, right? And, um, very, very, if, if you know anything about Ezekiel, you're, you're going to know about Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the dry bones, uh, right. And this, uh, these, I mean, bones are dead, right? I mean, what can you do with bones besides bury them or cast them aside? Well, because God is doing a new thing, um, in our lives and in our world This has some very deep implications for us. And so as I, as I pondered the Psalm to pray through tonight, um, I thought Psalm 143 would just be the ticket to get us ready for pastor Kurt's teaching tonight. So let's pray together. Psalm 143. And this particular version is from the English standard. Hear my prayer. O Lord, give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness answer me, in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit Let me hear the morning of your steadfast love. For in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will. For you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble, and in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies, and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.
1: All right, we've got good, good stuff tonight. You've earned another Christmas present. Chapter 37 is great. But before we launch too deep into it, I've got a quick archaeological update. This came out uh, basically today. It came out yesterday in England, which is today in the United States. They have found another crucifixion victim. And this is very rare in terms of archaeology. They found one in the 1960s that informed us quite a bit. He was found in Israel. This one was found surprisingly in Britain. So I think we have a photo of the skeleton itself. So remember the Romans are practicing crucifixion as a form of extreme public humiliation and torture. You die by suffocation on the cross. So this was part of 46 individuals they believe was at a slave camp. And they actually discovered these several years ago, and they put them in a a university back room (laughs) as most of the good stuff ends up back there. And when they started doing the forensic examination, they discovered first the heels, so take a look at that. This is almost exactly what we found in the 1960s in Israel. Now, it's very unusual that crucifixion victims are buried because most of the time they're left up on the cross to literally rot away. Birds and animals will eat them. So some dispensation must have been given, like Jesus' case, for this person to be buried. But uh, they dated this, and I have my giggles about this. They date this about 100 A.D., between 100 and 300 A.D., and we just have been through this great revamping of the CT system, um, with the carbon dating system, and they're supposed to be so much more accurate. And so now they're giving us between 100 and 300 AD. Well, 200 years AD is not a good uh, indication. I mean, we could have done that before. Anyway, I'm getting off. So um, that is was going through one heel into the other heel. So that sort of confirms what we knew before, that they're doing this and putting the nail through. And again, they can determine the length of time you're on the cross by the bend in your legs. Because what's happening is your body is becoming exhausted to breathe. The other thing that's really important for us as Christians to go back to the first skeleton, there is uh, damage between the lower arms. Now, fingers tend to be soft tissue, so they've... Degraded, But where were they putting the nails? Here. Christians always tend to miss this. Um, in Greek, this is your hand, from your elbow to your fingers. So when they said that in the New Testament, we translate that into English as it's right here. But if you send a nail through here, what's going to happen? It's going to tear down. What they did, and this is, again, proving it, is they're putting it between these two bones. And so that's what's catching you on the cross. So that was what was done to this guy. So, you know, it's horrible, it's tragic that we have to reflect back on this uh, form of execution. But, again, archaeology gives us some pretty good insight. be interesting to see what the British do with this. It uh, could be the centerpiece of a new museum for sure. But talking about bones, let's talk about Bones. Chapter 37, you have climbed Mount Everest. God bless you. Has it been easy and fun? Interesting, hard. We have slogged through some really hard soul-searching stuff, haven't we? This addiction that Israel had to the darkest forms of human practice, to take another's life to make yours better, to always blame somebody else for your problems, to create idols, images of God... And we've had all that stripped away. We've gotten to a new kind of raw, fresh start. And God has been trying to reveal amazing things, things that he's never revealed to his people before. Last week, we started with the introduction of God saying, I'm going to send a new shepherd, a single shepherd, a shepherd that will be God himself. And then he gave us a little more information and said, this shepherd will be David, my servant, David, and he will come and lead the people to a mountain. A mountain where they will come to worship me again. And it won't just be the returning exiles. It will be all nations. All of those of the Gentiles that choose to come back. So this was a, an atomic bomb. This was nothing like they'd ever heard. They're going to go home. Their new king is going to be god but a servant but david and we had a lot of questions now again this can sometimes be way more challenging for christians than it should be any star wars fans in here yeah big star wars fans. so when i was a little boy the first star wars turned out to be episode four right a new hope so i saw star wars four five and six and to me that was the beginning and then, decades later, when I have a son, his first Star Wars is episode one. So he sees episode one, two, three, and then four, five, and six. So our experience of Star Wars is very different. You know, Mine starts with Luke Skywalker. His starts with Anakin Skywalker. It's, it, it's a complete different world. Christians... Almost always, I've met very few, that don't read the Bible backwards. When we're growing up, let's be honest, we learn our gospel stories, our, our favorites, and then they bore us sometimes with the letters of Paul. And we kind of just hear those stories over and over and over and over, and we think we know the Bible. That's not really the way it's meant to work. We are given the answers a lot of times and we didn't even know the questions. So part of the the atomic bomb that's going off tonight is that God is revealing something that you know, but the people that were hearing it did not know. And here's the catch. This prophecy, this future event that God is describing, is one that we have seen, we will see, and is our ultimate future. So let's start off with chapter 37, verse 1. The Lord took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, this is a huge deal. This doesn't happen to many people. This will happen to John in Revelation, it's happened to some earlier prophets. But God is driving by the house, taking your soul out of your body, and saying, hey, let, let's go. So we're, we're leaving existence, we're, we're, we're going, I'll tell you what's happening, you're going to the future event, you're going to the end of the world, you're going to the day of death. I know this will get a little timey-whammy, but uh, he is, in essence, going to see part of what Daniel and John see. So God is taking him to the end point of time. But it's a valley. Wouldn't it be great to go to a valley? We've been climbing Mount Everest, going straight uphill. Valley, valley sounds good, but it's a valley filled with bones. All right, what are bones? I mean, I know it sounds simplistic, but we gotta we gotta think like a, an Old Testament Hebrew here. What are bones? They're what? Dead things. The first thing an Israelite would think about bones is that they are sinful. What did God say about dead things? Don't touch it. That's right. If you see a dead animal on the side of the road, no matter how delicious it looks, if you're from Kentucky, he says, don't. I'm not kidding. He says, don't eat it. Don't eat carcasses. When your family member dies, you can prepare the body, but do it as quick as you can. Within three days, that should be in the ground. Nobody, under any circumstance, should be left out above the ground. Now, for an Egyptian, that's crazy. We'll spend 60 days getting that body all dressed up and ready to go to the afterlife. Hebrews don't do it. We don't want to see it. We don't want to touch it. The wages of sin are death. So make those two connections. God has taken him to this place full of death. It's a horror. Now part of me thinks, well, is this just some kind of crazy vision or dream or what what is this? Well part of it is Ezekiel's life. When he was taken forcefully from his home and Jerusalem was destroyed, it was a slaughterhouse. There was no time to bury people. These are his family, his friends, his loved ones. And they have been left out to rot. It's, it's beyond words. And unfortunately archaeology confirms what Ezekiel is seeing. There were two groups, and I'm going to kind of mesh them for time's sake here. First the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are really the ones that did in Ezekiel's people. But we have historical records from both groups, Assyrians and Babylonians. Let me show you how they decorated their palaces, first in Assyria and then later in Babylon itself. So we've, I've got just a smorgasbord of them because they're horrible. So this is actually a Babylonian one. And they are celebrating that they've captured a city. And they decorate outside the city. And this is a, a small piece, but can you tell what they're decorating with? Heads. The Assyrians especially like to create mounds of skulls. They use them like highway markers. So anywhere you were in the Assyrian Empire and they built a lot of roads to move their troops around, you could tell, oh, you know, the skulls are getting smaller. We're getting closer to the town. So they are morbid, disgusting people. Uh, Continuing on, again, just to give you a a feel of them, um, these are uh, nobles that are being impaled. And again, this is their decoration in their palaces. All right. This is good morning. Oh, did did you you see those guys getting impaled? I mean, they're they're monsters. Um, Next one. Uh, This is a line drawing. Again, Babylonians uh, collecting heads of nobles. So, you know, the argument is always, well, this is just propaganda. They didn't really do this. When we excavated, in the early part of last century, the Jewish town of Lachish, which was a fortress town to the west that was guarding the approach to Jerusalem. At the base of the wall, this is what they found. Over a thousand complete skulls, probably close to another 300, 400 partial skulls. And these are Jews. Lachish was a Jewish city. So Ezekiel has seen this. He's feared this. I mean, it is saying, there was no one to come and pick my grandmother's body up and take her and bury her with dignity. She was thrown out like a piece of garbage. This is what happened to us when we lost our home. So as much as Ezekiel has tried to rebuild and bring the people back and see there's going to be a future... There's this nightmare. And, I, and for him, I think it really is PTSD. It, it, it's this spiritual crisis of that's the nation of Israel. That's who we were. And so God is going to take him on this journey to his great pain. And a lot of times when we ask God for help, when we ask him to help us deal with a pain or a loss or suffering instead of glossing over it or medicating it or numbing it. Sometimes he takes you to face it. And so I want you to hang with him here. Um, For me, this this passage has a lot of weight um, because I've been through this. I've been through death in my life, way too much death. And you don't want to face it. You don't want to face the future without the one that you love. But God's great love sometimes can take you and have you look, look at this. You and I are going to do this together, and you're going to see what this is really about. So he goes to a valley filled with bones. He led me around the old dry bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground feel that this is not one grandmother or two grandmother Um, this is this is a nightmare then he asked me son of man can these bones become living people again now how like God you've taken me to this horror show this place that no Jew that ever followed the law would stand for. And you ask me a question. <laughs> Does God ever ask you questions? That's usually the first indication that you're really talking to him. Uh, Jesus picks this up, right? Jesus always loves to ask questions. Jesus, why do you ask a question? Well, why do you ask? I mean, it's, it's this, this desire for us to know the answer. Our God is not the one that just dictates. Look, this is the way it is. Accept it. Move on. God is that loving parent, that loving shepherd that comes along and says, all right, let's you and I reason together. Let's, let's go to your place of pain and let's look at this. You look at this loss. You look at all of these lives that are gone. You fear that there's no life here. Is it possible... That these bones can live again. And we, of course, know, yes. yes, that's exactly what God's doing. This resurrection thing, it's real and it's gonna happen. But what does Ezekiel know? Has he ever heard of an afterlife? He has not. And this is what blows Christians' minds. Because we say, well, heaven's always been there. Well, it has. But they didn't know about it. Where did the average Jew think they went? To Sheol, the pit. You go into the ground. Three days, get those bodies and get them in the ground. There's no real question in their mind about an afterlife. Where do they want to go? What is their covenant with God? Where do they want to be? Nope. What is Moses promised? They go to the promised land. That's what they wanted. They want children, specifically sons, because they think that gives them a kind of immortality that their name lives on. And when they have children, they become good because they are fulfilling God's purpose. But for 90% of the Old Testament, they did not believe or even really care what happened when they died. So this is, for them, new. And I want you to hear that weight. I mean, this is God taking you to a funeral and having you look at your loved one and saying, do you really believe they can live again? You followed me, you listened to my laws, we've corrected our life, Now let me show you something that's beyond your wildest dreams. So Ezekiel answers, "O sovereign Lord, you alone know the answer to that. Which I love that answer. I don't know. But you do. You're smart. Um, So I think God grumbles a little bit. And then he says, Then he said to me, Speak to these bones and say, Dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Look. So this is strong in Hebrew. This is a a declarative. It's it's, pay attention. Look. It's super important. I am going to breathe into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscle on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So God... So sort of lays out what he's going to do. But who actually raises the dead? Who, who is supposed to, what did God say for Ezekiel to do? Speak. 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 So I brought you here. I want you to see this. As painful as it is for you. And I want you to say the words. You are going to understand what I can do. But with all God's power, with all his amazing abilities, he wants to do it through us. Now, how, how is God going to bring all these dead things back to life? So doing CPR on a skeleton. <laughs> um, that's gross. Um, what, what is he doing? He's putting air back in him. What would this remind? He's breathing a soul. Where, where does that come from, Tom? It comes from the breath of God. Way back in our original creation. Yep. We lived in the garden because God breathed into us. Now, there is a, another connotation they make here, and you need to always connect this in your mind. When you see a dead thing, it's sinful. That's just automatic, the connection they make. When you think of breath or wind, the same thing. You should always think of spirit. Our idea of a soul, a ruach, is what they're using here. So God creates us initially out of the clay or the the soil of the earth. And that's just a way of saying God has made us out of physical matter. Uh, we're literally made out of clay but we're made out of physical things so just like the other animals we have a physical body it's going to wear out one day it's going to turn to bones but to us and us alone he breathes this ruach this spirit this breath of God into us it gives us a soul a spark of eternity this is why we can think and imagine the future why we can read why we have emotions scripture this will blow your mind makes the connection between soul and love. If it does not have a soul, it one cannot love, it it can love and be loved. So if it doesn't have a soul, it cannot love. If it does not have a soul, you cannot love it. You can worship it, you can like it, you can enjoy it. Like I say, I love Star Wars. That's not right. I enjoy it. It's been great. It entertains me. It's wonderful. But in a biblical sense, I can't love Star Wars because Star Wars is not a soul, it's not a person. So, so precious this gift. And God says again, He's going to recreate us. So, of course, as Christians, this is resurrection. This is what happens when we die, this is when we come back. This is the, the second life that we're being given here. God wants Ezekiel to see it. And, and the detail here is probably more than we wanted to know, right? The bones come together, and the muscles and yeah, OK, God, just <laughs> But this process of rebuilding, bringing us back is, is so important for Ezekiel to see. Um, you know, let, let me just be transparent. Um, I, I've talked probably too much about this, but uh, a defining moment in Lisa and I's early marriage, we lost our first child. Uh, he made it for four days. Um, he had uh, lung infections and really struggled, and we, uh, we sat in a NICU with him and prayed every second of our heartbeat that he would live, and it crushed me. Um, I'd been a minister for years before that, and... Um, thought God owed me something. um, Never to take my child. And it it took me a long time to come back from that. Uh, And one of the scriptures that really helped was this. Because I have to sort of go back and look at uh, that little red, you know, if your child is born premature, they have this red uh, kind of complexion. And to look at that again, and to look at that with God that place of your greatest pain, if you can look at it, there's life behind that. There really is. And I can say it, um, but it's never the same as if you say it with God. And so I I lay this down. If, If you ever have had a loss like that, if you go through a loss like that, and I know some of you have been right there real recently, you know, lost the love of your life, lost the companion you thought you'd never lose. This is how God takes us through it, to look at that pain, hold on to his hand, and let him show you, I can fix this. I can bring life where there was death. We have to do what verse 7 says. So I, Ezekiel, spoke these words, just as he told me. Suddenly as I spoke, There was a rattling noise across the entire valley. And I would have screamed and run. Ah! The skeleton army. Ah! The bones um, of each came together and attached themselves as they had been before. Then as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over their bones. The skin formed and covered their bodies. But still, there was no breath in them. So this is fundamental to who we are. We are animals with two legs. We can have bodies. We can be uh, a talking animal. um, But unless we have that soul, we're not who we were meant to be. So he continues, verse 9. Then he said to me, speak to the winds and say. Let me stop there. Um, God is not (laughs) getting weird here. Um, What's the wind? The Spirit, exactly. And, and this will help you through all of your studies. At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, what happened? Uh, there was a wind, exactly. It is the flowing of the Spirit. It happens on Mount Sinai when God appears. It's this mighty wind. You know how I know God loves Texas more than anywhere else? <laughs> Why he loves West Texas more than anywhere else? I actually stole that from Steve. He, yeah, Steve's... People say, I hate the wind. It blows all this. It's just God visiting his hometown. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't begrudge him. But God says to the wind, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, O breath, from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies so that they may live again. And so in a sense, God is calling... The the four corners are the way that they show totality. So it's like the ends of the earth. It's all sides. Four... Always in the ancient world, they have like four sphinxes that guard the four sides of the world. The Greeks have the four pillars. The Bible is the same thing. So it's this complete spiritual sense that God has control over. And he's putting souls back into people. Now this is very, very important. In the traditional services, almost every week, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. What does that mean? Yes. I do this with the confirmation kids. A lot of times, Christians will say, oh, I believe that the body of Christ came back from the dead. Which is absolutely true. And that is the foundation of our faith. Absolutely. But that's not why that was put in the creed? When you die, you get a new body. You are not a ghost. When I was a kid, I used to watch the cartoons, right? And the the you know Bugs Bunny or someone would die, or it, really Tom and Jerry, right? Um, Tom always died, and then the cartoon I remember this ghostly form floated out his body, and he went on an escalator <laughs> up into the clouds, and he Saint peter with a a book and you come on in and you're always this sort of ghostly form all right that's not biblical that's not what they're describing here it's not what they describe in the new testament frankly that's greek paganism we are not souls that just float around our soul leaves our body our body rots the soul is judged and this is at the end of the world or the day you die it's the same thing And then if you're judged righteous, if you have the blood of Christ, the reflection of God within you, your body is placed in a, your soul is placed in a new body. And Paul spends a lot of time describing that body, right? This is the one that doesn't wear out, doesn't get old, doesn't get sick. You can run and not get tired. All the wonderful things are us in a new body. So just hold on to that. And that's fundamental. Like he's describing here, God didn't just say, bring the Ruachs back. He brings the body and he brings the soul back. It's fundamental to our nature, I think, that we are both spirit and flesh um, because we have the ability to choose and do. Uh, Angels are just spirits. They don't have bodies. Uh, We are that unique creation. Animals just have bodies, no souls. We are the combination of the two, somewhere between an angel and an animal. So, breathe life into these dead bodies so they may live again. So I spoke as he commanded me, and the wind entered the bodies, and they began to breathe. They all came to life and stood there on their feet, a great army of them. Then he said to me, son of man, how many times have we heard that phrase? I mean, sometimes God is subtle, and a lot of times he's not. If God is saying it over and over and over and over and over, it's like a teacher trying to get you to say, this is something to learn, something to learn. This phrase is changing for us. Son of man, literally the son of Adam. It started out as something pathetic. Adam was a failure. Adam and Eve had been in the garden for 15 minutes, it seems like, and they messed it all up and got thrown out. And... The rest of human history has just been failure, failure, failure. But God is beginning to change that. The son of Adam is going to bring us this great shepherd. The single shepherd. The shepherd that's God. The shepherd that is the servant of David. Son of man is going to be the one who brings life back to these dead bones. Brings life where we thought it was impossible. And of course... What is Jesus' preferred title? Son. son of man. It is not Christ. He doesn't run around saying, Hey, um, here's my business card. Uh, Christ, Jesus P. No, I don't know. But he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't do that. He, he, he's, he's like, I, the son of man. This is what he's referring to, this transitional thing. Um, we talked about it started in Daniel, but certainly in the prophets, Uh, This idea has been carrying forward. And so Ezekiel now sees the son of man. Really, the son of Adam. That's going to bring life to my family, to my nation. It's not just a general, oh, there will be future Jews in the world. These are my people. This was my family. They came back. Steve always does a good job of reminding us, I'll probably let you do this, but um, there was a prophecy at the end of Genesis where Mary, the descendant of Mary, uh, the the seed of Mary, was going to um, crush the head of the serpent, uh, going to defeat the sense of evil. Uh, That's the Son of Man. That's what's happening here. I'm going through this quickly. Are we okay? I told you it was good. I don't know if it makes up for all the stuff we've been through before, but it's, it's trying hard. Um, then he said to me, Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, We have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. And if you have really have tasted death, that's what it feels like. There are no more birthdays. There are no more Christmases. There are more, no more times to hold you. It's over. But God is saying, look at it. Really look at death. And I will show you all hope is not gone. Now give them this message from the sovereign Lord. Oh, my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, oh, my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you. And you will live and return to your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. You will see that I have done everything just as I promised. The Lord has spoken. Whew. Now poor Ezekiel doesn't have a life at this point. Bless his heart. But can you imagine going home? Oh honey, how was your day? Uh well God came by. <laughs> we took a little trip. Um, now, this is this journey that he's taken with God. And it is, in the full sense, an oracle. Oracles and prophecies are a little bit different. Don't want to get bogged down into it. But uh, this is an oracle. And with both of them, God tends to reveal eternal points to us. And these will have ways of happening happening again, and then ultimately happening. So on the one hand, Ezekiel will experience a version of this, that the scattered people that are in the Babylonian camps now, uh, some have run to Egypt, uh, some have run uh, to other places, they will come back to the land of Israel. There's another element of when Ezekiel dies, when people die, at we call it several names: the, the last day, the great judgment, the return of the Lord. All this will happen worldwide. All of the sons and daughters of Adam will be resurrected. This event that God is describing is ultimately what? What happens when we all get resurrected? Where do we go? We go to heaven. We, uh, again, borrowing from some of our pagan backgrounds, always think heaven is way up in the sky, in the clouds. You know, I'd heard about the cosmonauts doing that. Did you ever hear that back in the, uh, when they sent the first man in space? And he's, the Russians were so proud. They're atheists. And they said, there is no God. We've looked upon the heavens and there's nobody up here. First time I flew with Jason, he surprised me. We... Uh, we got up above the clouds, and you're here above that layer, and you look at all the clouds, and Jesus, or my son he, he's maybe four, says, "Where's Jesus?" I'm, like, I'm such a bad pastor. Um, so God is not describing really, he never does this. Heaven is not the clouds. Heaven is an event, a place outside of time, an eternal moment in which life exists with God on a mountain that we all gather it's a repeat really of the Garden of Eden it's been modified somewhat but it's the same idea there was a mountain in the garden there's a tree of life in the middle whether it's a temple or a tree whatever it is it's God in the middle and that's where we go and experience God Revelation will expand that Ezekiel's going to do that a little bit more he's going to describe what's in the city for us an incredible new temple so that's coming but it it's it's incredible. I mean, it we went from people that were killing their babies and taking advantage of each other to God saying, "I'm going to give you life after death." That's a Christmas gift. That's incredible. So, as always with the prophecies, can we judge some of this? Did Ezekiel's people eventually return home? Yep. About 80 years after all these events, and let me just give you kind of the quick, quick historical rundown, uh, because it's a long history here, but uh, the Jews uh, returned to their homeland um, at the benefit, really, of the Persians. The Persians will come along, and they will do away with the Babylonians. Persians aren't much better masters, but they want people that are loyal to them to be on their frontiers. And so they say uh, the Jews can return home. Uh, And the offer is given. This is the time of Nehemiah, Ezra, uh, and and those folks. So they return, and they will uh, begin rebuilding. Uh, This is uh, late 6th century B.C. They will begin rebuilding. Uh, the nation of Israel. Now, it'll exist for several centuries. It struggles mightily when Alexander the Great comes and he destroys the Persian Empire. The Persians and the Jews had been... The Jews were seen as loyal to the Persians, so Alexander didn't treat them particularly well. Alexander dies, you know, in India. Uh, His empire is divided up. One of his generals, uh, the Seleucid... What's his name? Seleucus something... The empire becomes the Seleucids. Anyway, so these are Greeks. They're ruling what is most of the Middle East. They don't like the Jews. They say, you've got to convert to Greek gods or we'll kill you. And so there's a huge struggle back and forth. The Greeks are brutal. If they catch a a Jewish child that has been circumcised, they kill the child and hang the dead baby around the mother's neck. So the Jews revolt with all that they have against these Greeks. This is what Hanukkah is about. The Jews' miracle managed to drive out the Seleucids and get their kingdom back. The the leader of this revolt was a guy named Judas, which is why the name is so important in the New Testament. Uh, Judas comes from Judah, which means to praise. And um, his, his name in Greek is Maccabeus, which means the hammer. Which I always thought sounded like a wrestler. Judas the hammer. But it's a good name for revolutionaries. Anyway, he manages to drive him out. And even though he's not a son of David, the Jews make him king. So they get their country back. They rebel the temple. They struggle mightily. Um, they're, they have these Maccabeans, or the Jews call them Hashomeans, They, they're pretty rotten, but they have some servants that are Edomidians or Edomites that first serve as advisors to them and eventually take over. And these advisors are Herod and his family. So Herod actually kills off the last of these Jewish kings and he does it with Roman help. Now, we go to the New Testament time when Rome is full bore in charge with Herod and eventually his sons controlling Israel. And it's a terrible, terrible time. Jesus comes, tries to tell them, look, there's a better way, Uh, there's a kingdom way that I want you to think about it. But still, the people's minds were back to the time that they fought the Greeks. And so the Jews try three times to revolt against Rome. They drive out Rome, and it's amazing that they do it. It's just faith and sheer willpower. They don't outnumber the Romans. They don't have good equipment, but they will revolt. The first one starts in 66 AD, about 33 years after Jesus, and the last one is in 137. But eventually, the Romans ban the Jews from the land altogether. They drive them out, period, So they are scattered a second time. And they will wander around Europe. I mean, they go all through North Africa. They end up in Spain. They end up everywhere. I mean, they were scattered like they never were before. And so they will stay in that stage from 137 AD to 1948, or 47, depending on who you talk to, um, when they come back again. So this prophecy of a people coming back to the land happened it's happened again in some of our lifetimes. But I think there's a greater moment in which this is ultimately going to happen when Jesus returns. Again, the nations of Israel will be brought back. The Gentiles who follow Christ, I believe, will join them. And then we're going to enter into the eternity, enter into, into heaven. So history has repeated itself, but we know where it ends. So I could literally talk about this all night, but I better stop because you probably want to go home. Questions? Worries? Comments? If you've ever struggled with losing someone, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to visit with you. I don't have all the answers, but I've been in the dark places and I've been in the light places. And as Christians, death should not be something we fear. We live in a world where people are petrified to die. And I don't get it. We live longer lives than any people on the planet. We have access to better medicine and more technology. And yet we're more afraid to die than anybody I think ever has existed. And that's backwards. We shouldn't look for death. You don't want to force death. But please... We don't need to be afraid of it. It's hard to lose someone we love. God knows that. And that's one reason I think he lays this out there. So we can feel the pain, but also feel the hope on the other side.
0: Anything else?
1: Well, we love you guys. You don't know how much time with you really helps feed us and what we do the rest of the week. So we wish you an incredible Merry Christmas. I'm sure we'll see all of you sometime before the 25th. But if we don't, may Christ be born for you. And you see, we're headed to a great place. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we get to be part of this story. We know for a lot of it, we've been looking over other shoulders and eavesdropping. But all along, you've thought of us too and you include us, this has become our story. We do have loved ones that we fear we will not see tomorrow or next week. So we pray for your help tonight to hear that wind blow again, to feel your hand around our shoulder again as you ask us, is there nothing that I can't do? We know you are good We know we want to be with you. So we choose tonight to do just that. Help us to celebrate the birth of the shepherd, of the servant David, of the Messiah, of our Christ. Let this year be the year we really feel you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.